Good morning, Steve Dale's Pet World on WGN. A special program for a variety of reasons. First of all, kind of obvious. Merry Christmas! Christmas Eve, right? And Happy Hanukkah to all of you. And also a very special guest on this program. For the last two years in a row, at this very time of year, Dr. Mark Goldstein joined us. He is the author of Lions and Tigers and Hamsters, What Animals Large and Small Taught Me About Life and Love and Much More Than That. And he is much more than that. Dr. Goldstein's own story will get tissue ready. That's all I can say. But also one of the most optimistic people on the planet. But with everything going on in the world today, even you, Dr. Goldstein, do you wake up in the morning thinking, gee, how am I going to find a need to be or the ability to be optimistic? How can I say that this is going to be a better world for my grandkids? Wow. Thanks for that lead in, Steve. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> Oh, your listeners, a Merry Christmas um, to those that celebrate that. Happy Hanukkah to those and others. All the best wishes for whatever holiday. Um, Steve, that's probably part of the answer. And that I believe as long as we have people that have an ethical, moral background, whether it be in religion, spirituality, or their own beliefs, or Buddhism, we need a lot more of that. Yes, it's been a, a bit of a tougher world in the past um, year or so. I'm sure for many people, past three or four years, um personally steve you know my case and um boy if i open my eyes and i take a deep breath and my feet hit the ground it's a great day <laughs> so that's so you know personally i get my strength from something we might talk about a little later in the program but more globally it's still a beautiful world i can't let anybody steal that from myself now when you ask what about my grandkids i worry about it i think every generation worries about it I think part of the problem is, in fact, our kids, and by that I mean Golda Meir from Israel said many years ago, until we stop killing each other's children, we'll never have peace. And that's true for all the sides of these political debates and arguments. And if you take away something very valuable from someone else and they don't think it's right, especially a child, there's nothing more valuable. You've got an enemy. We've got to stop doing that and figure a way to talk it through in all our different ladders, in the country, out of the country, globally, environmentally. Um, there's solutions there, folks, if we put our head together and not try to blow them apart. And we don't talk to each other anymore, uh, at least in this country. I think that's part of the problem. I mean, it's one thing to scream at one another, uh, but it's another thing to actually talk with one another uh, with an open mind, uh, and that doesn't happen so much. And the reason why... Or the re among the reasons why I ask you, because there are several, this particular question has to do with what's been going on with you over the past couple of years. We'll get to that. As a veterinarian, you have done about everything there is to do in veterinary medicine, running a major zoo, running a major animal shelter, working in private practice, and also specializing, particularly you have an interest in cancer care for pets. And the list actually goes on. That is not a complete list. And when it comes to the human-animal bond, uh, you have an intense understanding of that and the importance of that. So with that as sort of a backdrop, what are some of the trends you see 
in veterinary medicine from this past year. And I'll kick it off and ask you about how, when you first began veterinary medicine, how you must be jumping up and down right now. I can see you jumping up and down because of some of the pharmaceuticals and the technology behind those drugs that we now have available. Steve, you just touched on, you know, if I were going to give you a more professional answer to how do I get up and be optimistic. So if we take the profession and also the passion that you and I share, and that's for animal welfare and human-animal bond, and you put them all in the mix, yes, I'm very optimistic. You know, we have, first of all, just in a, a, a large sense, I'll speak in this country at least, we have gone from having a dog in the backyard on a chain to coming into the garage to going from the garage into the den, and now we fight for space on the bed with them. So, <laughs> yes. And this is true about any of our pets. I know you have some unusual ones at home. Um, and uh, But, uh, you know, it, it, the human-animal bond gets me up. I've seen it become now not just a topic that a few people talk about in the back room, not some esoteric lecture at a high intellectual meeting, but, you know, just commonplace now. People use that term. And by doing that... I realize now that more people understand it's an equation. Animals give us something, unconditional love on our domestic animals. In the case of agricultural animals, for people who eat meat, it's a food supply. And in wildlife, it's what keeps us alive. I think more and more people, even though some are being stubborn, understand that some esoteric bee or wasp or frog that they may consider an irritant because it makes noise or it stings actually keeps the globe going and keeps us alive. We're dependent on animals. And as that dependency is understood, it's always been there, we're elevating them to better care, which is ultimately what our goal was 10, 20, 30 years ago. Not breeding indiscriminately. People are spaying and neutering now. There's affordable spay and neuter clinics that have become commonplace now, not some crazy person in a corner. Um, <laughs> Crazy you know, we person see. in a quarter. I don't know exactly what that means. Very quickly, but we only have a minute left in this segment, but very, very quickly, uh, you mentioned sharing our beds. And Haley, who is a producer here at WGN Radio, uh, she asked me what I thought about our dogs, or for that matter, I'll expand the question a little bit, our cats, sharing our bed with us. What do you think about that? Well, you know, you speak about a topic that I have to tell you when I first went to you real quick, and that was, do we get consent? I never really, I, th- I thought you were a little bit off there. And the more I heard you talk, the more I realized that we don't force, we shouldn't force our animals into something. So if the people in the household and the particular animal in the household think it's both not stressful. And if there's no health reason not to, let them decide how they live. As long as we're being respectful of each other and not hurting each other unnecessarily. Okay. Well, I still didn't get to the answer about pharmaceuticals and some of the cutting-edge medicines. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the virtual care that's been going on, telehealth, telemedicine. Should it be in veterinary medicine as well? Uh, And also, simply the number of pets we have. We have never shared our homes with more pets than we do today, in part because of the pandemic. We'll talk about all of that and more, as they say, when we come back with Dr. Mark Goldstein on WGN. Lions and tigers and hamsters. What large and small animals have taught me about life, 
Love, and Humanity. Dr. Mark Goldstein, the author of that very book, is here talking about a whole lot of things this morning on WGN. Uh, Merry Christmas to all of you. Happy Hanukkah as well. We're talking about this year in veterinary medicine, which includes new technology and all these things, including artificial intelligence. We'll talk about all of that, but the need for all of that occurs because we have more pets than ever before. So before the pandemic, Dr. Goldstein, with every passing year, beginning even going back to the 1980s, the number of pets slowly was on the incline. Every year, there were gradually more and more pets. Then the pandemic hit, and the number of animals skyrocketed, in great part because of adoptions. The animal shelters said, help, because they had no idea if people could even come in to feed the animals. So people did help, and this happened all over the world, actually, and adopted uh, or rescued dogs and cats and other animals, too, from shelters, went into pet stores, and a record number of hamsters and gerbils and a variety of pet snakes, a variety of pet lizards and turtles were all sold through these pet stores. So we have more pets in America than we ever have had before. Is that completely a good thing or or not? What do you think? Well, I think as long as they're getting the care that they deserve, it's a great thing. But, it, you know, just in general, if people are surprised that that happened, this has happened over history and uh, over the centuries when people are desperate, when times are tough, difficult, the pandemic made that difficult for people. They seek out things that give them relief, that give them humor, that give them love or, or make them feel good. Unfortunately, some people seek out bottled alcohol, drugs, but many people seek out things like the theater, uh, parties, their animals. Now, during the pandemic, we got much more limited in what were some options. And thus, it's it's very clear. Animals give us relief from life. They make us laugh. They give us unconditional love. They bring beauty into the world. Um, so that's that's really, it explains it very easily. Is You know, when we are desperate, we turn to our animal friends. Uh, it's the human spirit. And there's more we can do for our animal friends. So I've asked you a few times, we haven't gotten there, but now we will to talk about the new technology as far as pharmaceuticals. I'm talking specifically about what are called monoclonal antibodies. There's three of them that come to my mind uh, that this year were like huge changes for the better for our pets in veterinary medicine. Well, I think One Health helped that, Steve. One Health was finally... People understood that veterinarians, physicians, pathologists, all of us in healthcare have a very common goal, and that's to make our patients better and keep them alive as long as possible, as long as it's indicated. And thus, out of that now spawned a lot of coalitions working together, like on monoclonal antibodies, personalized medicine. People hear about it in humans. It's being practiced in animals, like you said, stem cells. Um, osteoarthritis in cats has been substantially affected by that. You know, the, the nature of the medications that have come online. Now, it's not a panacea yet, Steve. I mean, just like with people, we have to work through if something's good for you, it also may take a toll on you. And the same as our pets. And so some people have had great success and things have gone along very well. I recently talked to a veterinarian who pointed out that he was seeing the same side effects, though, in patients from monoclonal antibody treatment that he saw in his brother-in-law and hmm. those were the side effects so we have to work through those but the 
the bright light is you're absolutely right. Medicine has advanced substantially. Um, we now understand that behavior and nutrition are critical parts of keeping our animals alive. It's not just giving them a bowl of dog food or a bowl of cat food or, you know, some hamsters, a little bit of food, throw it in there. You've got to keep them clean. You've got to interact with them. And those things are becoming more discussed, more apparent and more expected of us. And our animals are getting the best aspect of that. And so are we. Tell me about artificial intelligence uh, and how that is impacting veterinary medicine. Well, from my understanding, and Steve, I'll, I'll give the, pre- the the you know comment I made to you before we got on the line today. And a Merry Christmas, by the way, to everyone on this segment, too. Um, and a Happy Holidays, Happy Hanukkah. Um, AI in general, I was going to say, as a veterinarian who's retired now, I'm good about diagnosing still because the diseases are still the same. Uh-huh. But I'm not so great about because there's new drugs that are coming out every day. Artificial intelligence is helping our veterinarians and our vet techs and our physicians take all this enormous amount of information that's out there. We hear it doubling in short time, you know, less than 10 years, then it was less than five years. And it sorts through it and gives them things like a game plan. Once they put in the symptoms, still requires the medical person to recognize the problem. It means the owner or the caretaker has to recognize it still. But then to try and treat, even diagnose, we can go to this plethora of information that's out there, and it is advancing things substantially. Are you uh, worried a bit about virtual care? So telehealth, telemedicine, it is what many uh, patients or people with pets want, uh, particularly millennials and those in Generation Z. However, uh, do you think we're ready for that to go wide open, if you will, in, in the world of veterinary medicine? Well, just like I think we've said in other segments and other talks we've had, Steve, personal relationships are really still what makes the world work. Talking to people. How does that play into telemedicine? Yes, you can talk to a person, but now who else is in the room? And that's the patient. And I grew up in a world where physical diagnosis was the most important, and I think it still is, tool that a veterinarian has to diagnose something. Physical diagnosis, and that incur- that includes physically looking at the animal and feeling it and touching it and listening to it and smelling it. I can't tell you how many things I've learned while an owner is explaining what they think's going on, watching the pet in the room, watching them limp on the leg that they thought was okay, but it was really not. Um, the owner thought it was on the other side. So, you know, there's limitations to what a two-dimensional camera can provide. Now, having said that, the next generation, you know, our parents or my grandparents would have even questioned whether a telephone would help in a conversation. We learned how to use it. We also learned how to abuse it. Like any other tool, humans tend to abuse and use great things. Well, I think it's this place. Well, it's got to be, I'm sorry, Steve. No, go ahead. But, it, but it's got to be in concert with a relationship. So the first time a doctor is called upon to treat a patient, I'd be very hesitant about doing it through telemedicine. After he gets to know them, and it's a recheck on a diabetic animal, and we just want to check in with you, Mrs. Smith, how's Fido doing or how's Avi doing? Oh, that's great. But we've got to have that personal interaction, and I think um, it's going to kind of have to come back the pendulum just a bit with the next generation. Yeah, I think we need that patient-client 
uh, relationship. And once it's established, and once the veterinarian, as you just said so eloquently, has that relationship, then maybe there are all sorts of things that can be done using telehealth, which benefits everyone. You know, you may not be able to come in with that cat so easily, despite efforts from myself and many others to explain to people that you can train a cat to a carrier and cat-friendly practices and fear-free medicine as well, despite all that, and also the difficulty for some people who might be 144 years old of coming in to see the veterinarian. I think it's an option, but only once that established client-patient relationship has happened. I, I would agree fully on that, Steve. Um, you know, I, an example I would use is my own granddaughter. Um, uh, when my daughter's or son-in-law and daughter's animals get sick, they call me. I'm 30, 50, I'm 50 miles away. I know that my granddaughter can palpate that animal and tell me what's going on much better than my uh, daughter and son-in-law. And they would admit that also. She's good at it. So I have to get to know Hey, is this person I'm seeing on the telemedicine capable of really relating to me what's going on or not? Uh, Can I see the animal through that lens and make the the decisions I have to? Or do I have to say, hey, come on in, let's get to know each other. And then in the future, we can also save that, you know, that the need to come in. We might mention in another session, Steve, that part of the reason that telemedicine is also important today is because of the limitations of veterinarians and qualified people available to treat our animals. It's getting tougher and tougher. Yep. Which we will which we will talk about as well. And most importantly, talk about this book. Lions and tigers and hamsters, and much more than that. I mean, your experience is so varied. We're going to hear a couple couple of Mark Goldstein stories and your story when we come back on WGN. It's a dramatic reading. Be prepared. A pet's night before Christmas. Twas the night before Christmas and all through the house. Not a creature was stirring, especially the mouse, cause the mouse knows who's in the house. Oh, there's Fido, there's Fluffy, there's Duchess and King, on Rover, on Scruffy with that squeaky thing. Go by the red hydrant, run past the trees, nothing can stop you, not even the fleas. They heard a tinkling on the roof, you know how reindeer are when you gotta go. The prancing of each little hoof, then down the chimney St. Nicholas he was greeted with a purr, and a bark, and a bite on his Nicholas. He came with squeaky toys, rawhide and liver to deliver. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, oh, how merry. When Rover licked his nose, it tasted like sherry. He sprang to his sleigh. To his team, he gave a whistle, and he said, Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. Dr. Mark Goldstein is here, a veterinarian who's done it all in veterinary medicine, and we are celebrating the holidays with your book. Tell me about, here's the name of the book, the longest name ever. You ready, friends? Lions and Tigers and Hamsters, What Animals Large and Small Have Taught Me About Life, Love, and Humanity, Dr. Mark Goldstein. Why did you you write this (laughs) book? Why did you write this book? So that people today, if they get gifts they don't like on Christmas, return them and buy my book. (laughs) (laughs) It's there to help them. So before I go any further today, it's just wonderful to talk to you every year like this. I want to, first of all, you know, it's a time to be thankful. And what we have to be thankful for, two things I want to mention, and that's you. 
because of what you do for behalf of animals and people, making people smile and bringing to the attention of all of our communities what the importance of the human-animal bond and good welfare is for our animals. The other thing I have to say I'm grateful for today, it's my grandson's birthday. So happy birthday, R.B. Oh, oh how nice. All right. Well, happy birthday as well, and thank you for the kind words. But tell me about the book. Okay, lions and tigers and hamsters. Yes, I, I have. I, I'm, a, I'm a unicorn in our profession. I've worked in clinical medicine, especially in internal medicine and cancer. And I then went on to become director of the zoos. The last posting was the Los Angeles Zoo. And then the highlight of my career, frankly, was becoming president of the San Diego Humane Society, where I dealt with animal welfare issues and animal policies on a much grander scale. All of those have stories. There's everything from the first chapter of me being thrown 30 feet and almost killed by an elephant was my fault uh, to uh, having a um, young boy teach me uh, facts of life really about what's important in life with his hamster and uh, taking a tumor off a goldfish well let's uh, let's pick one of those stories and uh, we have a couple of minutes here tell one of those stories but make it a heartwarming one after all it's the holidays well um Let's talk about our goldfish. I think that's a story I love to tell every year because I think it really brings to light. What does he mean, the human-animal bond? What's that all about? Well, if anybody's listening now and I said I just took a tumor off a goldfish, they've rolled their eyes in the back of their head because I love watching my own colleagues do that. Real quickly, Steve, this woman came into my office. Uh, Ironically, an attendant was asked to go out and help her bring the animal in because she needed some assistance and it was raining. So the the attendant brought a tarp with them to find out that the animal was in a fish tank. So it was raining. It didn't really bother it. Comes to my (laughs) office. I look at this person and you could tell she was an adult woman and she had just been crying. I assume because people thought she was crazy that she's bringing a goldfish. What can a veterinarian do? I look in the tank and here's a fancy goldfish. They live about 10 to 15 years. And he's got this pedunculated tumor off his gills. In other words, like think of a mushroom upside down hanging off his gills. And he's slowly becoming not buoyant. And that's going to be a demise. I go, okay. She changed my world in five minutes because she explained, Dr. Goldstein, my son's autistic. He learned to count watching his goldfish go around the tank. He learned to feed himself by feeding the goldfish. He learned to care for himself by cleaning the tank with me. And the last thing he said when I left was, Mom, what did I do wrong? Because I said I'm going to the veterinarian to the doctor. He thought he'd done something wrong. Wow, Steve. <laughs> I left yeah. the room and when I was at Angel Memorial, a blessed place owned by the uh, Massachusetts Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals in Boston. I found not one but two surgeons, told them the story. They quickly came into the room with me. We made a promise two weeks from now we'll take care of the problem. We're going to talk to the New England Aquarium. We'll figure out what to do. And two weeks later, we were anesthetizing this little guy with bromo seltzer because we didn't have MS-222, which is what you'd use today. Uh, one surgeon was holding him. I flushed his gills to keep him both alive, aerated, and anesthetized. And Dr. Mike Aronson, I still remember his name, removed that tumor meticulously because he couldn't use cautery. Cautery powder would you know, block his gills. Electric uh, cautery would not be good with water. And he took it off meticulously. It was sent down to pathology. It came back benign. This goldfish went on to live a, live a normal life. Steve, there's no question I went home that night knowing that I had affected in a positive way two lives and many more that they come in contact with and to tell his story even. Mm-hmm. At the time, I realized it's weight, but a young boy and a goldfish. And boy, I felt good going home. It's so good to be a veterinarian. And I still say that today. So and tell me, tell me one, 
tell me one of the many. You have countless zoo stories. Oh, my gosh. Um, you know, first, I thank all the people in the second part of the book. You'll hear some secrets and some magic that happened to raise money. In my whole career, Steve, I raised over $100 million for animal welfare. And I don't say that bragging. I'm saying that thankful for all those people. The homeless man that I saw in a street corner once when we were having a dog walk, 1,500 dogs. He looks over. I see him walk towards, you know, the walk. So I, I walked over and I, I meant every respect for it. I, Hi, can I help you? What do you, can I help you? She said, he said, what's going on? I explained this was to raise money to help animals. Steve, this man was homeless. He was pandering on the corner. He walks over to the jar of money. He takes all the money out of his pocket and empties it into the jar for the animals and wow. walks away. Hmm. So the next time people ask, should homeless people have pets? I answer those questions in a book. Every fourth chapter or so, why do we have zoos and aquariums, Dr. Mark, if you care about animal welfare? And I answer that. What's the future of animal welfare? Why do we need pet insurance? But I also say, why should uh, should homeless people have pets? Yes, because if you watch, I'll ask somebody out there, if you're a dog or, you know, where would you rather be in a rich person's backyard, biggest state, in a $10,000 dog house? But every 10, maybe every day, you get 10 minutes of somebody throwing a ball for you or right next to the person that you care for, the homeless person, 24-7, pets you all day, dumpster dives, feeds you before he feeds himself. We've seen these people get tremendous um, feedback from their animals, the human-animal bond. Now they have a purpose in life. They're going to be more likely not to use drugs. They're going to be more likely to be in their right state of mind because they've got something to care for that they love that's giving them unconditional love in return. So hmm. that's my story regarding homeless people. And I don't know if we've ever really talked about it, but I feel strongly about it. As long as that animal's getting that kind of care, that's what for me decides, Hey, should so-and-so have an animal? You know, I'm a proponent right now. Most state laws, animal welfare laws are you need to require food, water, and shelter. Gosh, I wish we could turn it into food, water, shelter, good health care, and love companionship. Because that's what we owe our animals in return for all the things they give us. And my book's filled with stories of people that do that. A woman who I unfortunately had to, you know, came in with a terrible form of cancer, a mangiosarcoma, often seen in German shepherds on the spleen. We were able to remove the tumor, but the dog was going downhill quickly. But she couldn't bring herself to euthanize him, which is a humane death, a respectful death, folks. And when it's necessary, gosh, I'm, I feel so fortunate. This may sound strange to have been able to take animals out of suffering um, and, you know, relieve them, give them a respectful death. I was there holding my own dog's arm when somebody was helping me take him over that rainbow bridge. And it was a godsend at that point in his life. He yeah. deserved that. Yeah, I think it's the most uh, courageous thing, most difficult thing, but most beautiful thing. Uh, that you can do. We're talking to Dr. Mark Goldstein. The name of the book is called Lions and Tigers and Hamsters, What Large and Small Animals Have Taught Me About Life, Love, and Humanity. Dr. Goldstein, we're going to hear a different type of story. Your story, you're going to take us down a road that is kind of surprising to some, but Dr. Goldstein is here to talk about it, which is what's most important. And we will talk about this story when we come back on WGN. Dr. Mark Goldstein is here, a veterinarian who's done it all and continues to inspire other veterinarians. You know, I wish there was a way I could just snap my fingers and say, every veterinary student or technician student must hear 
as a part of the curriculum, Dr. Goldstein speak for a couple of hours uh, because you are also one of the most optimistic people I know when this profession is suffering. I, mean, I don't know that people in the public know how often uh, veterinarians take their own lives and some of the difficulties that occur within veterinary medicine. On the other hand, Dr. Goldstein, you have a story to tell, and I'll let you tell it. Thank you, Steve. And I hope this is helpful for people here. And yes, I, I, I don't know how to go through life not being optimistic. I, I really don't. I just, I, there's always some, you know, silver lining there. And in my case, Steve, yes, you're talking to someone I don't mind saying. I'm 71 years old. I practiced veterinary medicine. I was a veterinarian for over 40 years in all the various different roles we talked about in other sessions, a zoo director, a clinician, a president of the Humane Society in San Diego. Um, and when I got a diagnosis, um, well, 10 years ago, I got rheumatoid arthritis. I brought on some chronic pain issues, turned it into an opportunity. I had to stop working the 10, you know, the regular, you know, nine to five job. Not that I ever saw nine to five as a veterinarian. I saw before nine and I saw way after five. <laughs> um, but, um, and I loved it because I loved what I do. And everybody knows that the more your work is like your passion, the less days you work in your life. Um, and so I retired from, you know, practicing and working 40, 50, 60 hours a week to writing the book, Lions and Tigers and Hamsters. I realized that my wife and I, Chris, have had just an incredible life. I've, I've worked with tigers. I had one want to eat me. That story's in the book. I've got a hamster and Harold, the hamster and a little 12-year-old boy that teaches me the value of lesson by giving up his bicycle for Christmas because he wanted to have the hamster's leg operated on. That's in the book. Um but then I woke up one morning and I wasn't so good because it was a week after my wife had retired and I looked in the mirror and my skin was yellow and it led to a diagnosis finally of pancreatic cancer. And for anybody that just heard that, please don't feel sorry for me. That was now 32 months from ago. I am so lucky through my whole life that I was able to say first, when I got the diagnosis, Chris will tell you, my wife, I turned to her and I said, Chris, if this is the last chapter... I'm okay. I haven't left any big regrets on the table. I haven't left any big things I want to do on the table. I have a wonderful family, healthy kids, healthy grandkids, healthy grand dogs. I'm okay. But having said that, I got a lot still to live for. <laughs> and that was 32 months ago, Steve, in a disease that most takes half the people in eight to 10 months from diagnosis. So I'm beating the odds. I intend to keep doing this. At my 10th anniversary, I'm coming to Chicago to see you. <laughs> Fine by <laughs> me. And we do see one another at conferences periodically. And you had a major surgery that is sometimes the the surgery, and, and people just generally don't survive. Now, good luck may be a part of it. Do you think your attitude has something to do with it? And as you mentioned, you've been battling other physical issues along the way uh, that continue is it is it is laughter the best medicine? Laughter is great medicine. Um, I, I something I use is called grapes. Uh, if you think of the initials G R A P E G, go softly on yourself. Give yourself a break when you get something like that happening or any kind of major calamity that you don't expect. Um, you know, R recognize that and recognize challenge yourself every day. Just recognize what you're facing and challenge yourself to get something. You know do something um 
you know, and then we go on to talk about, you know, basically it makes sure you exercise every day. Make sure you, you do a task. Admiral McCracken, charge of the special forces who got Osama bin Laden and, and did great things for many years, a SEAL in the United States uh, military. Um, he wrote a book called Make Your Bed. Folks, you get up in the morning, he says, make your bed because now you've completed a task. You can go on to the next one and you can feel like you accomplished something. So whether it's make your bed you know, uh, make breakfast for the whole family who wasn't expecting it, any of those things. You start to think outside the box. I know it's a cliche, but you can make life what you want. You get to decide when you wake up in the morning whether it's a good day or not. Nobody else does. You look in the mirror and you can say, this will be a good day or it won't. And you'll face the adversities that you have to. In my case, like you said, I went through a ripple procedure. Um, It is devastating for many people. Um, I happen to be lucky enough that instead of the three-week recovery period and the six months at home getting over all the stuff, I was out of the hospital in five and a half days dancing in our kitchen with my wife. Hmm. I, 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 do I have, people have said, Mark, you then, Dr. Mark, you have a pure purpose for being here. I'll tell you what I get great joy out of today is speaking to my profession and explaining that, you know, we are lucky to do what we do. 80% of people, it's thought, go to work in the morning to put or in the evening <laughs> to put food on their table and take care of their responsibility. Less than 20% get to get up in the morning and go, this is my passion. This is my calling. And boy, I don't know any veterinarian that at the time that they applied to vet school wasn't overjoyed when that letter came. And even at graduation, we hold up rectal gloves that we do pregnancy checks on cows. We don't throw our hats in the air. Um, <laughs> you know, we're cheering. We're crazy. We're laughing. And then, then I start to see these people, the spark starts to go out. And there's no reason to let that spark go out. You know, in my case, it was all the different opportunities I had that kept me alive. But I've met single, you know, practitioners who have a singleton practice just themselves, and they're happy as anything. Find what makes you happy. In veterinary medicine and animal welfare, folks, you'll get a lot of feedback. It's more than a paycheck. You'll get an animal wagging their tail, an animal licking your skin, an owner crying, thankfully, for helping them. And one of the other secrets, Steve, that I know in, in terms of veterinarians, I tell them, you see 20 patients in a day. Yeah, one of them, the animal's trying to bite your face off or, uh, you know, cat's trying to scratch your eyes out or the owner more likely. The animal's going to act fine, but the owner's going to act up because of the bill or something. Mm-hmm. And then at home, we go home that night, and what do we focus on? We saw 20 individual patients that day, and we think of the one that gave us the hard time. Don't let them kidnap you like that for any profession, for any day. Don't let that 15 minutes of nastiness that occurred because somebody even ran into your car. Look at the fact that you walked away from the car accident. (laughs) You know, don't let adversity kidnap your day. Well, because because we're running out of time, I'm I'm simply going to ask you a yes or no question. Uh, do you have goals? Still, you have goals, goals. Oh, goals! I was going to say seagulls. No goals, <laughs> not seagulls. No. Yes, I do. Uh, yes, I do. And and you know, I I get up every morning, and one of my goals is how can I make people laugh? I really do. I think I was put here for three reasons besides being a good father, grandfather, and husband, and that was to relieve animal suffering, to talk publicly about the human-animal bond and, you know, just to light how important that is to a healthy community and society, how we treat our animals. And third, make people laugh. So what I do, just to put a smile on face, folks, it's Christmas. When you go out tomorrow or the next day or three days from now, you're in the store, you're in a restaurant, you pass a, per- a FedEx driver, you pass a UPS driver. 
try and get their name first of all and then say hey if it's george or mary hey george thanks for what you do you put a smile on my face today george hey george thank you will see people just grin from ear to ear when you use their name and thank them for what they're doing because people don't take the time to do that yep a little kindness goes a long ways a smile goes a long ways and you being my friend goes a long ways for me dr mark goldstein Happy Hanukkah to you, and Merry Christmas to all. Thank you so much again, and I will be talking to you on this radio show, same time, same place, one year from now. Thanks, Dr. Goldstein. You got my promise. I'll try my best. You know, I've been talking increasingly about dog bites because data's been trickling in about how numbers are, well, going in the wrong direction. According to the Insurance Journal, the number of claims... Uh, since 2023, has gone from 7,359 to 17,597. That number way exceeds the percent in the increase of the number of dogs, which are at a record number. Now, the Chicago Sun-Times recently wrote a story about this, and they pointed out in the piece, and it's good news, that people in all parts of the city uh, now have dogs, including pandemic-purchased puppies, or adopted, better word, puppies. However, many of these neighborhoods also have dog training and veterinary care deserts. They, they don't provide opportunities for people. According to the Sun-Times story, through mid-October, the lower west side of Chicago, which includes uh, much of Pilsen, saw the highest number of complaints regarding dogs, with 260, followed by Austin, on the west side. And according to that story, uh, an explanation for that is there are no dog-friendly areas or dog parks in those areas. True enough, there aren't, and there should be. However, there is no association between dog parks and dog bites. In fact, if there is an association, I would say it's not the kind that the sometimes is implying. Having dog parks doesn't necessarily mean dog bites will go down. In fact, the reverse may be true. That's my point about this. Too many stray dogs in some parts of many parts of Chicago. That's part of the problem. Housing is an issue for people, and some of them just let their dogs out. I mean, who let the dogs out? Well, it's people who have, they feel there's no option. Now, there's no excuse for that happening. Also, the shelter is overrun in the city. The Sometimes story doesn't quite have it right. Uh, the broad notion is correct, and we will talk to you next week, bright and early, on WGN.